Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Ceci Davidson. She holds a doctorate degree in speech-language hearing sciences from the Graduate School and University Center of the City University of New York. She has provided therapeutic services for children with communication and learning challenges for over 30 years. She's also a playwright. She's founder and curator of Short Plays to Nourish the Mind and Soul, Free Public Theater in New York City. Her short plays are titled Articulation, Fricatives, and Belabials. They are eclectic mixes of stories with surprises, tragedies, delights, and wit. I'm joined by 17 of my Harvard classmates. Hi, Bill Collins. I'm in Aiken, South Carolina. I've been here about 30 years. Grew up in Boston, went to Harvard, class of 63, Navy 20 years, three kids. My wife is here with me. The kids are all elsewhere. Came here to work at the Savannah River site for a while, cleaning up nuclear waste. But I'm retired from doing that. Uh, Ron Blau, class of 63, been in television and video, still doing some videos, mostly volunteering and occasionally script writing for hire. Hi, I'm Spencer, down here in stormy, unusually stormy Florida, uh, and I am a class of 61, uh, and uh, I am very much looking forward to this uh, session. Uh, and because it touches on uh, too many aspects that I'm interested in to even start counting on this brief introduction. <laughs> All right, Nick. <clears throat> Nick Bancroft, outside of Boston, uh, Medfield, Massachusetts, uh, class of 63, uh, Harvard Business School, uh, Peace Corps in India for a couple of years, back to Boston, uh, investments, trusts, um, wills, and... <laughs> Sort of stuff. Okay, John. Well, hi, John Woodford, 63, here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I've been an editor and writer for a number of years. Okay, Jeff. Uh, uh, Jeff Fox, also class of 63. Um, a lot of years uh, working in and around Latin America as a sociologist, as a community organizer, and uh, then and now writing mostly fiction. Okay, it's Pete de la Savoy, and I live in New Hampshire, and I'm a writer and editor, and originally from Evanston, Illinois, along with Spencer. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're, we're glad to have Miss Davidson back again, and hope we'll hear, uh, hear some short plays about apples and so on, which were <laughs> wonderful last time. Great, great. Liz. Hi, how are you? I'm Liz Morey. I'm uh, also uh, Radcliffe class of 63. Uh, I live in Tacoma Park, Maryland, just outside of DC. Um, I'm a almost completely retired clinical psychologist and I come from Los Angeles. So I'm very much a Californian. Okay, David, Alan. Here in Concord, Mass, uh, although my soul is out in Indiana on a farm where I grew up uh, mm -hmm. many, many, many moons ago. Uh, 
I've had a pastiche of a life, business and academics and an activist for democracy in later times. Like Looking that. forward to today. Okay, David Othmer. Uh, David Othmer on the edge of the Penn campus in uh, Philadelphia. I grew up in South America and Central America and spent most of my life in public broadcasting, WNET in New York City and WHYY here in Philadelphia. Okay, Marcy. Um, <clears throat> I run Clean Air Campaign and it's Open Rivers Project in New York City, or it runs me. <laughs> and, uh, and it's Archives Project. Um, not at all retired, and I'm a member of the technological <laughs> underclass. Just <laughs> <laughs> have to figure that out. Ham, I shouldn't have to follow Marcy. Hampton <laughs> <laughs> um, Howell, class of '63, uh, living in Nashville, an unretired clinical psychologist, and I'm wondering how many patients. Liz has to drop before she, uh, before she, uh, you've been giving us this tease about dropping, <laughs> I, I, about completely retiring too. Okay. Okay. Ezra, how are you? All right. Uh, Ezra Griffith, class of 63. I am an emeritus professor at the Yale School of Medicine. Okay. Jerry. Uh, Jerry Secundi. I live in Pasadena, California, uh, lawyer, environmental lawyer. Spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps trying to save the world. Was not very successful. And Liz, before you retire, I may need help. So <laughs> I'm available. Yeah. I don't think you were so unsuccessful. I think we did collectively make a big difference. Sessie, well, welcome to come coming back. And it's so good to see you again. And I think before we didn't really hear enough of your work and didn't do you justice. So I'm glad you're back with us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm, I'm joining you from the beautiful island of St. Croix, territory Ooh. of the United oh. States. And so it's, uh, it's at least 86 degrees here. Oh. So although I love all the seasons and I love the winter season in New York, I didn't miss it this year. I've been here maybe about six months working with the priceless resource of St. Croix, which is the children, um, providing speech and language therapy for children with language and learning and communication difficulties. So along with doing my playwriting work, I've been busy doing work with the children. So it's been quite a joy that will wind up soon. So tell us a little about your playwriting, you know, how, why you do it, how you do it, and that sort of thing. Okay, so um, let me tell you first what I, what, what I have on my landscape. I, I write every day, um, and I won't tell you what hour I start to write, but it's, uh, let's just say, by the time you're all probably eating breakfast, I'm ready for dinner. <laughs> but I don't know how to do it any other way. I think this way of working probably started when I was in graduate school, working on my PhD, two very young children. I could only start to do my research and read and write and study 
when they went to sleep. So I get them in bed and then I take a brief nap and then two or three in the morning, I would start to do my work. And unfortunately, even though my PhD is over 20 years old, I haven't been able to break out of that habit. So moving from um, one career overlapping with another career in playwriting, I still work that way. Um, so I have three books, uh, three anthologies right now that are published by Aqueduct Press, Articulation. Can you see the books? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Ricketts. And this is the latest one by Labials, which is a tribute to women and their lips, upper and lower. So um, I'm supposed to get a little laugh there. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, what does that mean? Okay. A little slow on the uptake. Okay. So, and they're available from the publisher Aqueduct Press and also through Amazon. I also have my own print imprint, which is um, going to launch this year. The first book is called America Asarima, and all of the plays in this anthology are themed around racism and responses to racism. So I'm very anxious to get this book out there into the universe before the new election. Uh, I have some work that is actually occurring near you, um, Kent, up in the Catskills. I did some research on, um, this has been ongoing on Sojourner Truth and the Underground Railroad uh, presence in the Catskills, and I wrote a play called Raw Truth with award-winning actress uh, Aitza Kendricks. Um, I became the pride of Ulster County. Oh. I'm very proud to be the pride. <laughs> um, and so um, I hope to um, premiere that uh, in the Catskills in June as well as September. And while on St. Croix, because I can't stop working. And the nice thing about being in St. Croix is one of the nice things is um, I wake up at that kind of unusual hour. And while I'm writing, I can sit on the deck and watch the sunrise. So that's one of the wonderful things that um, helped to inspire a new play called Miss, Miss Grier Rises, which is about Dr. Eliza Ann Greyer, who was the first physician licensed to practice in Georgia. And her life was unusual. She wrote a letter to get admitted into um, the Philadelphia Women's um, uh, University, Medical University. She was accepted, but she didn't have money to go. So she alternated years picking cotton, going to school, picking cotton and going to school until she could finally finish with her degree. Sadly, after she was licensed, I think perhaps she worked maybe about five years before she passed away, but she did um, was able to achieve her dream. So that's been my very lazy life since I last saw you all. Well, how did you happen and, to find her or get pick her to write about? Uh, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know. But honestly, <laughs> that's the hardest thing about um, talking about my work because it's inspired. It could be inspired by a, a speck of dust. It could be inspired by a sunrise. So, um, or I hear a word and I think, okay, what can I connect to this word? So um, somehow, and I don't know how, I remember getting a clump of cotton from Whole Foods. Now, what Whole Foods was doing with stems of cotton, I don't know. But I brought the cotton home. I sat it on my, my piano in a vase. And I just, I'm looking at the cotton. I'm staring at the cotton. Okay, who picks cotton? Is there any joy in picking cotton? You know, um, has picking cotton led to anything wonderful for people? And somehow it led me to Dr. Eliza Ann Breyer. I mean, we are fortunate that we have, um, have the internet now, not like when I was in graduate school. So if my mind is wandering and thinking about various things and trying to connect, I usually begin with a scribble. And the scribble is in my language. It's nothing that anybody could read, but I begin with the scribble and I say, okay, this, okay, this. And so that led me to Dr. Eliza Ann Breyer. I was thinking, that I wanted to, uh, I definitely, I'm glad that you want me to read more of my work today. And I was thinking, I wanted to begin by reading the introduction to my book, Fricatives, and telling you about my father. So may I do that for a moment? Yeah, mm. sure, yeah. My father, Charles Davidson, was a gifted musician. As a young man, he was offered a scholarship in a prestigious music school. Obligations to the family business prevented his attendance. His family and music were his joy. While working at the CND Cement Block Company, he continued mastery of all of the stringed instruments. The bass violin was his preferred bliss. I remember hearing his tunes from the living room fill our home. And I have his image so vividly in my mind. He would come from work in his dirty, dusty, cement-filled work clothes, go into the living room, pick up his base. And my mother kind of gave up fussing about all of the dust and cement going in the living room. And he just began to play. He could play it all from abstract jazz stanzas to Broadway show tunes. As I watched my siblings become musicians, I wondered why I wasn't blessed with the music gene. Later in my adult life, I found musical expression through written language, phonetic tones, word stress, and sentence intonation. The dialogue between characters in my plays often mimicked improvisational conversation. Thank you for listening. Uh, that sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Where did you grow up? Long Island. Long Island. Okay. Well, here's a comment out of the, uh, the blue. Uh, <clears throat> we have a, a 
a daughter in uh, Boulder, Colorado. I'm being in Massachusetts, <clears throat> and she married a a, a guy who uh, did lighting for Blue Man Group in Houston and then Boston. Oh, yes. And he yes. his his mother <clears throat> said that uh, he was a playwright or a play uh, producer at the age of three. <laughs> and he's, I believe it. He's continuing in Boulder, and your word improvisation uh, uh, leads to this. I don't. I don't know if you can see this. Yes, I can. Yeah. Have you heard of that before? No, I haven't. It's a play by uh, a fellow named Duncan McMillan, Englishman, and it is a one-actor play except it isn't because that actor calls upon members of the audience to join in. And the, it's, the, the, the topic basically is suicide and how to uh, deal with it. And the storyline in the play is about a young girl who is worried about her mother that, who has suicidal intent and the girl wants to put together a list of all the beautiful things, maybe all the brilliant things that the universe has to offer. And the audience in the play uh, with one lead uh, contributes to this list. And so the audience has to contemplate all the brilliant things in the universe. So when they leave, they uh, are a little wiser, perhaps, about life and the goodness of life. So uh, it's an interesting play, if you'd yeah. like to look it up. <clears throat> Thank you for sharing. I, um, I remember the last time I was visiting with you all, I talked about perspective taking and how theater and looking at characters and plot can help us to broaden our perspective. Um, I also, um, thinking about the play you just mentioned and audience participation, um, I never really start out saying I'm going to write a play to soft teach. Mm. After I'm finished writing the play, I look at it just like anybody else would look at it. And I say, well, what was this play about? So I do have a play called Baby Doll, which explores um, a glimpse in the life of Clara on the day that she decides to leave her husband who has been assaulting her. Hmm. So again, I didn't begin saying, oh, let's write a play about domestic violence. But as the character developed and the plot developed and the story developed, I saw that this was a play that could help um, the audience as silent observers because it was staged for the audience to be surrounding Clara who was in the middle, lying on her bed, waiting for her abusive husband to come home. And the audience was on either side of her, observing her pain her torment, should I stay, should I leave? Examining what is the dilemma for any woman in that situation, fear or love. Staying because of fear, 
staying because of love, leaving because of fear, leaving because of love. And so what I discovered for myself and shared with the audience, with um, the production of this play is ultimately love of self. The woman's love of self is what leads her out of the abuse. So um, yes, I, I think that um, plays are to play <laughs> for entertainment, but plays are also to begin dialogue and intelligent conversation. And so what I like to, to say to anyone who is willing to listen to me, uh, that it's not so important that you agree with everything I write, agree with the stories. They may not be your fancy. They may not be your opinion, but what I would like is for you to agree that my voice is one that deserves to be heard because there's nothing that love, but love that grows here. And I write about all kinds of things. I write about nuns who abuse children. I write about incest. I write about um, bananas going to a gas chamber. <laughs> I write about all kinds of things using, my favorite way of writing is by, um, giving human form to inanimate objects, animals, plants, bushes, trees, ideas. Um, that's my favorite way of writing. But you should know that in this exploration and then in this release of my wild mind, there's nothing but love that comes from it. Sassy. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead, David. Ceci, you had yeah. earlier uh, uh, showed us uh, how a topic for a play emerged. Uh, you have probably said before, and I've missed it, but let me ask anyway, please. Are you describing here how the play writes itself to you, for you? Yes. Uh, obviously from yes. within side, but... Yes. Uh, it's, it's not everybody's way of working. I never sit down. No, let me not say never. There was once because of the, my work on raw truth, about Sojourner Truth, because it's realistic fiction and it has so much actual historical information. And I needed to keep at least a traditional timeline in mind, I did sit down with an outline of what happened in her life, but I followed the rules and then I broke them, which is why Raw Truth has been so successful because it doesn't play like a history book. It plays like looking at the inner life of who Sojourner Truth was and stripping away the misrepresentation of who she was to show, to release herself as a woman, as someone's lover, someone's mother, someone's friend, someone's daughter, not just the icon that is flat that we read about in history. 
Jesse, I have a couple of questions. Um, one is, uh, and I don't know, you know, this this may have been very spontaneous as well, how you got interested in inanimate objects as ways of kind of communicating. Um, and also, if you want to give us an example or two of that in your I'd writing, I would love that. Okay. How did I get interested? <laughs> I was probably eating something and then started writing about food. Um, I was probably looking at something and started writing. I'm, you know, in the Catskills, um, I'm sure um, Kent can attest to this. We have such beautiful um, trees, bushes, flowers. Right, right. Would you agree, Kent? I would agree, but let me, um, let me I ask could, you off the top though, why, why did you pick the form of a play as opposed to novels and that sort of thing? How, how did you pick that okay, form? Okay, so uh, I believe that it emerged out of my experience as a therapist and conversation. When you spend all of your adult career or most of your adult career listening, speaking, listening, speaking, helping people communicate by being speakers, being listeners, conversation, it's, it's in my bone marrow. Um, so I see the world, not in images, but in conversation, in words. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's how I grew up as a scholar. And then of course, you know, with um, coming out of my family background, always surrounded by love, and love takes many forms, love images, words, experiences that contributed um, working with children therapeutically, listening, knowing, knowing um, the joy and the hard work that comes from working the whole year with a child before they say, say their first word, like what, that joy is like for the therapist and for the family, as example. <clears throat> Hope I didn't go off topic. No, but... <laughs> impossible. Um, so, um, right. Oh, writing about inanimate objects. So, I always ask myself, how are we going to become better? How can we become better human beings individually? as groups, as communities, neighborhoods, as a nation, as a world community, how is that gonna happen? Um, maybe we have to step out of our experience as humans and reimagine those experiences with non-humans, mm -hmm. like bananas. <laughs> <laughs> like cats, like trees, like bushes, like clouds. <laughs> so I want to I want to read you an example from Hill Lesson. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh. All right. So Kill Lesson is in my first collection. So all of my play, all of my plays. They really are what they say they are. They're short plays to nourish the mind and soul. So Kill Lesson comes out of the first book, which is articulation. So thinking about 
um, just for a moment, inspiration. Do you know um, Ernest Hemingway's famous line? I think, forgive me if I don't say it exactly, but it's baby shoes for sale, never worn. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah. that's a whole story. That's a whole novel. That's that's a trilogy just in that one line. So I feel the same way. Some people, before they gave up, they used to ask me, more or less they were asking me, well, Ceci, when are you going to grow up and write a full-length play or, or film? And I would, you know, I at first I tried to answer them, and then I realized that they just didn't get it, that it's harder for me to draw you in in three to five pages than it is for me to drag it out into 90. I have to get you in. I have to get you committed and interested in the characters. I still have to have that timeline, beginning, middle, and end. Although I have to say, I'm playing around with that. I'm looking at non-linear ways of writing my work. But that's, that's for another show, Kent, with some more work. <laughs> um, so, um, I have to I I have to work harder to write a short play than a, a longer one when I have time to fool around. I don't have a word to spare. I don't have time to spare. I I have to get you in, keep you. And my mentor Zach Scalar has he said something to me that will never leave me as long as I'm a writer. He said, um, "Get in late." and leave early, <laughs> and that's what I try to do. And also, just from, you know, I my writing is very spiritual. It's in my bones, it's in my mind, it's in my heart. It's in all the experiences that have run through me. So when I sit down to write, I begin with a scribble, and I try not to get in the way. <laughs> so I don't edit myself. I'm not like, oh, this would sound better. I just write, I just write. And usually um, I write until it's done. So if I start at 3 a.m., wasn't supposed to say that, but if I start at 3 a.m., I'm gonna sit there until it's done. Mm -hmm. All right, kill lesson. Okay, so uh, Kill Lesson is in the first collection, Articulation, and the characters are Junior, who is a large adolescent male cat, Kilkegaard's son, and <laughs> Kilkegaard, an adult male street cat, Junior's father. Susie, who doesn't come up in this scene, is a small domestic mouse, female mouse. The setting is present day, it's an afternoon, um, it's an alleyway on Restaurant Row, and Kilkegaard is demonstrating kill movements, and Junior is reading. <laughs> you ready? Lights rise. Kilkegaard. The soul and the body, son. Our eyes innately show fear. Your body communicates different intentions. When you're out for a kill, your body needs to communicate to your prey. <laughs> 
Are you ready to die? I will assist you. It's all in the wait. And then he demonstrates, stalk, pounce. The instant stink takes over you chemically and you kill the sucker. <laughs> it's no wow. fun if you rely on this instinct alone and don't intimidate your prey. That's how cats become fat and slow at an early age. They don't make an effort to nourish their killer instinct. I earned the name Kilkegard, guardian of the killer instinct. Devotion to killing every day. Junior? Yes, Dad? Junior! Yes, Dad? How did I earn the name Kilkegard? Uh, uh... You were named after the Danish philosopher and social critic, Kierkegaard? <laughs> Junior, put away those books. You're here for your kill lesson. Don't waste our time. Can <laughs> <laughs> I bring you in to the story? Yeah, yeah. 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 Makes me think of our cat over there. <laughs> There's a lot you can learn from your cat. That's right. Well, tell us about how you wrote that. I mean, what was the dynamics in terms of writing that one? <laughs> I probably had a cat at the time and was watching it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah. usually, usually it's not that linear. Mm -hmm. um, I I had um, my sons and I had had um, cats, various cats in our mother-child career together. And um, one morning, I don't know if this is what stimulated, but one morning I woke up and my cat was running around the room like crazed, hitting her head into the walls against furniture. Uh, I didn't know what was wrong, wouldn't even allow me to touch the cat. So Finally, being able to get the cat in the car and get to the vet, um, found out that the cat had a tumor and had gone blind. Oh. So the vet said, um, we could remove the tumor, but what kind of life is this going to be for her? And so she was put to sleep. So, you know, the inner life of a person, not just a writer, is not a straight line. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, all kinds of lines, curved lines, zigzags, circles, squares, you know. So I can't say I had this experience with her and then I wrote this play because there's also my oldest son, Hannibal, his cat, Shanene, who would leave the house, kill squirrels and mice and bring them back in the house. So I don't know, I can't say that there is any one experience that creates my life. I don't, I don't have canned characters like that. Sometimes I wish I could do that kind of work, like just have canned characters and do really, not that all commercial work is that way, but, I don't seem to be able to latch onto that kind of 
way of writing. So, you know, what I'm trying to say is there are many different experiences that might affect um, my writing a piece of work, which is why it, it becomes very difficult for me to say what inspired me to do this because it could be a variety of things. Mm-hmm. So the only sure thing that I can say for sure is I just start, I carry, I never leave the house without um, a piece of paper and a pen. And if by mistake I do, I get a napkin or I get a placemat or something and I write. And I may not know what it means, like green pea. All right, green pea. Then I'll get home and I write a play called Frozen Stiffs about green peas in a freezer. <laughs> so. We well, missed that one. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Jeff, did you have your hand up? Oh, yeah. Well, I just wanted to make a comment that uh, something that uh, Ceci said a little earlier really impressed me. And it probably also has to do with her work, thinking, uh, hearing her, the dialogue she creates as music, as a musical composition. I think, I think that, that is wonderful. And I, th- and I think in my experience as a reader and a writer, that hearing, I, I, hearing the language as, as, you, as, as we read, the rhythm. And so, so I, I think it's wonderful. I think I'm sure your, your father's music um, has a lot to do with both your choice of writing plays with it full of dialogue and and the way you do it. <laughs> right, right. Thank uh, you. Uh, Amp. Yeah, Cece, I wanted to ask, uh, one, how do you manage sleep and productivity and alertness? And more, more quickly, uh, uh, I'm from West Hampton, Long Island, all year round. And where are you from there? Okay, so I'm from Suffolk County. Yeah, me too. And um, so my um, my paternal grandfather, um, Ignatius Stanislaus Davidson, um, immigrant from Guyana, South America, and he came to Long Island and he um, created with a partner, Mr. Cumberbatch, uh, the CND Cement Block Company in mm. Wyandanch. And they created this, it was the, um, the first um, um, manufacturing plant by African-Americans in that region. And for that reason, um, the two of them became um, honored as um, most uh, among the 100 most important people um, for the development of Long Island. So that was out in Suffolk County. And they, my grandfather also did a remarkable thing was, you know, given the um, level of prejudice and difficulty with um, people of color to find homes, he decided he was going to buy up land and make um, affordable housing in Windanch. And not just rent to people, you rent so that you can own because that's what he believed, that people should own their homes, especially black people who were shut out of so many opportunities to live on Long Island, that um, it was important that um, people of color own their own. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did I answer those questions? Okay. Right. Um, I would. Yeah, I was wondering. I mean, it sounds like you write from just inspiration and dust smoke in a yes. you know yes. ray of sunshine. But then afterwards, like you know, I'm looking at your eyeglasses right now. Yeah. And for <laughs> some reason, mm-hmm. yes, for some reason, the shape and the color is resonating with me. I it may mean nothing. Right, right now, I'm just, I can't get my eyes off them. <laughs> well, if you so write it. turns a, up a, in a story, I'll let you know. Okay, and if it ends up as a, as a feature film, I want at least 5% of the gross. <laughs> you know. Um, but, but I wanted to ask, okay, so a dust mode of, you know, a cat inspires the story, but afterwards, do you find out that you're, background as a therapist kicks in and that there are messages there that you didn't realize with, that you were writing or yes. do you not consider them message plays? You know, cause you could look at Kierkegaard and talk to kids or adolescents. Well, what do you think of his character? Yes, yes. So I, I don't begin as a message play. And so there are steps I write don't get in the way. Don't get in the way. Keep writing. Don't be afraid. Don't get in the way. Keep writing. Keep writing. Keep writing. Finished. And sometimes when I sit down, I say to myself, wow, this feels like, because I don't use a computer. I write by hand. So sometimes I'll pick up my writing tool and I'll say, wow, I'm feeling 120 pages. And so I'll take all the pages and I'll number them to 120. And then I just start writing and I stay there till I'm finished. So next step, next step is I can't just leave this work in the kitchen. It's supposed to be shared. So I have to put my language in a form that you'll be able to interpret. So that means I have to use a computer. So that's when I set it up in standard form, um, in readable form. That's the second step. And then the third step is I have a very good friend, editor, Celeste Reader Baker, who is also a writer, science fiction writer. And I say, okay, I have another one and I'll send it to her. And she'll look it over and she'll look it over for I call that the cleanup. So she'll look it over and she'll say, wow, you know, you had this, this gigantic bat that came in on page four and then I never saw him again. And I'll say, oh, maybe he belongs in another place, you know? So, but that's the cleanup part. And so that's like step three. And then, um, then I have the play, play read by professional actors. And in the beginning, I never wanted to see what the director was doing. The directors would always say, don't you want to sit in and comment and, and this and that? And I would say, no, I want, to, I want to be like the audience. Mm-hmm. And so I'd sit in the audience just like anybody else. And I'd say, wow, look what happened. Look at that. Look at this. You know, I love that thrill of excitement of seeing, wow. So 
that's what a girl and her bird was about. <laughs> the bird dies and gets eaten. Okay. So <laughs> that's what happened. Thanks. Liz. Uh, I'm going to go back to uh, Hamp's first question, which was, uh, I think probably the psychology question is, um, uh, do you get enough sleep? Um, and how do you manage all that? So I, I, I definitely have gotten better over time. Um, cheers for a plant-based diet. I do eat protein and I do eat meat and fish, but plant-based for vitamins and minerals, fresh air, um, positive attitude, walking around in the beauty of the Catskills and other places that I have an opportunity to be around, keeping love around you. My partner say, says, it's not who you're around, but who you avoid. So anybody who's <laughs> negative and improper and rude and any of those negatives, I, I wish you well. I wish you love, <laughs> but can't be around you. So all of those things, in addition to, I still am working on my sleep. Ezra. I, I, I find uh, what you're talking about, of course, just to be beautiful, unique. Um, it has its own strangeness. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'd, I'd like to come back to, I'd like to come back to uh, the effort that most of us make, I think, to translate whatever the artist intends into something symbolic that the audience, uh, the audience individuals have to make their own. So let, so, so let me take your example with the cats. I, I found that absolutely intriguing and, and I reacted very positively and it would, that would make me read uh, uh, other pieces of your work. On the other hand, a lot of what you're saying about your preparation and, and what drives you, in, in that you're not, you're not talking enough about, or let me frame it affirmatively, I'd love to hear you talk more about the other processes that are extra you, outside of you. It, so for example, going back to the cats, it, it, so happens that, <laughs> it so happens that I tell stories all the time at cocktail parties about the fact that I don't like cats. <laughs> and and, and I, I stand up with a drink in my hand and I actually have practiced this uh, for other purposes, but I can do a stand-up comedy routine on my dislike of cats, especially over the years, because it allows me to, 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 to brainstorm about all kinds of things about cats. But and I'm, I'm trying to establish this relationship between us because, because I write. I mean, it, this is in my retirement, I've, that, that's one of the main things that I do and I have my own processes that I use. Yours are intriguing, of course. But when you come out of it, you still, you, you must be interested in having me think though positively about the cat's piece. No. You, you, no. All right. No. No. Let me. Let me, let me finish. You can. You can protest. You can protest afterwards. You can. You can protest afterwards. And and and, and of course the privilege is yours because you're our guest and I'm not going to try to take away that privilege at Wait, all. Wait. Time Believe out. Me. Where? I'm listening to your language. Where's? Where are you from originally? 
I, I am originally from Barbados. Okay, thank you. Right. Um, so, so let's get back to this and let's let's talk about your cats. <laughs> and and it's it, it's striking also just culturally internationally, you know the, the, the I, I I love to see the way uh, the American people, for example, kiss cats and so on. We we don't do that in the Caribbean, at least in my island, and, it, and not when I was growing up. Hey, the Brits do it. Well, that, that, that's 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 a, no, no, that, John, you're right. That but that's a developed country. We we always used to say that's what the white upper class did with their animals. So 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 let's so tell me something about this. Uh, you're not interested, or you are interested in in my audience reaction. Um, because I can only react to the cats as a function of my own longitudinal experience as a human being. Um, that that that's what I'm postulating. And and if I if I grew up in a way that my experiences channel me not to like cats, it it it, it, it I somehow think it must interfere with the artist slash audience relationship which i think is important to the production of any artistic uh any any artistic piece in in, in any model but i've talked enough that hit hit me back hit me back <laughs> <laughs> so am, am i writing this piece hoping that you will um go to the animal shelter and bring home some cats no <laughs> oh. but what I am hoping, and I discovered this after the play was done and read, and I saw actors bring life to it on stage, is that I'm hoping perhaps you will examine your belief system about killing. Ah, okay. Well, I already had come to that notion because the thing that struck me immediately about um, the, the, the stuff is that you were engaging violence. And, and so can we teach our kids to kill? Ex exactly. So 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 you're coming closer to me then. <laughs> so, so you're coming closer <laughs> to me. Because because it's well, I'm just asking the question. My work is to generate intelligent conversation. So that's my question. Should we teach our kids to kill? What do you think, doctor? Well, I, I can. I mean, I can. I can answer that. I can answer that, and we can go on for another hour if you want. But, <laughs> but, 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 you, but you, you've you've got to come back to then frame it in a structure, and you've got to you've got to contend with the, the argument that I'm trying to raise, because I do find your technique fascinating. But but I think but I think we, we and it I'm, can't I'm trying, be duplicated. I'm just telling you, people have I, tried you, for years to try to figure me out. Somebody has said to me, oh, Ceci, uh, what is in your brain that you could do this? I just wrote a play called Retirement from Public Service. Do you know what that play is about? A no. woman trying to retire her dress to the Salvation Army. <laughs> she doesn't want to wear it anymore. It's causing torment in her life. It has bad memories, reminds her of her abusive aunt and mother. And at the end of the play, she takes a scissor and cuts it up. <laughs> but you're getting you're getting me away from my question. 
and and you and you're trying to take away my privilege from me of of uh, of of engaging you in, uh, around this issue of cats. <laughs> you you already dodged. You're dodging her yes no question about whether you would teach your kids to kill. Thank you. I want to know the answer to that because as a writer, I want to learn from the audience's experience. So, but, sir, should we teach our kids to kill? But should I'm only we demonstrate I'm, but, killing. But I'm only I'm only dodging it because <laughs> I'd already thought of that. I'd already thought of that. The most the most obvious representation in the structure was the structure related to violence in some form. What 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 I'm what I'm trying to engage you in is an, an is another potential engagement process, which has to do with the notion of um, getting to feel like cats takes me out of the normal anthropomorphic tendencies I would have when I go to the theater, which is to represent things in 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 terms of the longitudinal experiences that I have as a human being. I am not a cat. And, and but that's what but that's what's seducing me about this. I, I find it so interesting that you use these 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 um these stimuli, these these representations. And, and, and I'm trying to, to to try and understand and communicate with you about what to what end you do that. I think you're gonna spook me and I'm not gonna be able to do this anymore. Not at all. Not at all. I, I'm just trying to understand it better. I'm actually congratulating you uh, that it's so original. It is original. I, I, I'm not Thank struggling you. with that. I'm, no, I'm not struggling with that at all. But I want to get closer to how I can Thank imagine you. myself in this communication and this interaction with the cats. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get at. But isn't that a beautiful thing that my work could encourage us to explore our human experience without the with with an a non-human form? Mm -hmm. Yeah, isn't it a beautiful experience that we see two artists engaging each other? <laughs> yeah, so beautifully. Say again, should we teach our kids to kill? Oh well, for me, for me, that's really it, it's it's a non-question because it's 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 an obvious answer. I'm not answer. Okay, but think about you are one person in an audience, so you're part for a brief period of time. You're in a community of listeners, so. I'm I'm also curious about can you know because most of the theater we go to the theater we're entertained we're saying oh that's great and then it's done I'm interested you go to the theater you're in a brief community for a period of time and you leave reflective of the experience your own and whatever group energy felt so I don't want to spoil the play because I want you to buy my book and read that play. But <laughs> by the end of the play, I want you to feel something about killing that maybe you didn't feel when you walked in before you heard the play or read the play. Okay. 
that, well, I, appreci that I appreciate that though, because I mean, I don't, I have, I have no right to tell you what to think. I just hope that my work encourages thinking that is not surrounded by hate and prejudice, thinking that uplifts, thinking that moves us forward as, as people. That's what I hope. That's the only thing I feel I have a right to want. <laughs> I'd like to just mention, my wife just handed me a note. The Aiken Animal Shelter is seeking a home for a blind cat and it's seeing eye cat companion. <laughs> <laughs> That's on your side, Ezra. <laughs> that was Ceci Davidson. She is a playwright and therapeutic speech specialist. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. 